As I said, this section of Genesis that we're covering tonight is a long section. Chapter 42, verse 1, to chapter 45, verse 1. Three chapters. It's actually the longest section of Scripture that I've ever preached in one single sermon. And yet the reason for choosing such a lengthy passage as the basis for one sermon is, I think, probably evident to us after reading that, is one narrative. Very clearly one narrative. Again, I'd remind you that the chapters and verses were not actually part of the original inspired writings, but were added much later. If you took up Genesis to read in an afternoon or or an evening, which you easily could do. I mean, we just read three chapters in ten minutes or so. If you were to take it up and read it all in one sitting without chapter and verse demarcations, I think you would very much be inclined to see these three chapters as one section. There's a single unified theme running very, very clearly through all three of these chapters. It's focused on one major theme, which is Joseph's testing of his brothers. Joseph puts his brothers in these three chapters through several tests. Imagine this situation. Joseph was sold into slavery 20 years earlier. Now he's ascended to be the vizier of Egypt. He has adopted Egyptian customs and shaved his face. We were told that in a previous chapter, so he has no beard, unlike the practice of the Canaanites. His brothers sold him into slavery 20 years earlier. They're not likely to say, hey, that vizier is our brother. They're, they're predisposed not to recognize him, as they probably think he's either dead or in probably some dungeon or some digging some trench somewhere. They're not predisposed to recognize this ascended, exalted figure as their brother. And of course, 20 years changes someone's appearance considerably. And so this man standing in front of them is no longer the 17-year-old that they sold to the Midianites. So they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. As you might imagine, this would be an emotionally charged situation for Joseph. But he's most likely given thought over the last 20 years to what would happen in this situation. Probably all the more so because he would recall his dreams that he dreamed so long ago. The significance of which dreams was that he would one day rule and reign over his brothers. And so especially upon his ascension to the second in command in Egypt, I'm sure Joseph gave thought to those original dreams and considered what would happen if his brothers should come through his front door, so to speak, in order to buy grain from him. Joseph doesn't let on. He's not carried away by emotion. Hey guys, it's me. He acts very deliberately and in a sustained way over a period of at least a couple months, if not several months in this passage. He acts in a very disciplined way, a very intentional way, putting his brothers through several tests. First, he tests whether they will lie. He accuses them of being spies and asks them at the beginning of 
chapter 42, where do you come from? He wants to hear what they're going to say, what they're going to tell him. And they tell him the truth. Then he tests, are they going to steal? He puts the money that they've paid back into their sacks. What's going to happen with that? Are they going to act as if nothing had ever happened? Like if a friend of yours is riding in your car and forgets a bill that slipped out of his pocket on the passenger seat, are you going to just act as if you didn't find it? I mean, it could have slipped out anywhere, right? He tests them, are they going to steal? Then he tests, will they care for their brother? He keeps Simeon. Let's the rest go, but he keeps Simeon. Are they going to come back for him? Or are they not? Then he tests, will they care for another brother? This is essentially the same test, but intensified with Benjamin. Will they show care for him? And they te- he tests finally, will they care for their father? Joseph wants to get a feel for what kind of men these are now, 20 years later, as they stand before him. I will confess to you, for a long time, this section of scripture was so confusing to me. It seemed really bizarre. Because it seemed like Joseph actually had goodwill towards them. And yet at the same time, it seemed like Joseph really had a lot of hostility towards them. And I was confused at why the, why the conflicting signals. I mean, he leaves the room to weep, but then he comes in and speaks sternly to them. His compassion grows warm for his brother, and yet he's you know, throwing them in jail and all of these kinds of things. And I was thinking, what is this? And of course, we're not left to surmise that Joseph is an emotionally unstable person because he's the vizier of Egypt. He's obviously very well put together, well thought out. He, he shows extreme discipline here in this situation. And so it was just a very confusing passage for me. Until I read a book called Unpacking Forgiveness by Chris Bronze. And when I read that book, this passage made so much sense to me. Chris Bronze talks about in that book the necessity of repentance in order for relationships to be restored. And he uses this section of scripture to illustrate his point and to make his case. Along with obviously several other passages from scripture. But he argues that what Joseph is doing here is seeing whether there's repentance. Seeing if and to what extent his relationship with his brothers might actually be reconciled. And so Joseph is actually acting very graciously in this passage. Joseph is acting with extreme goodwill. Even in his sternness, even in his rough handling of his brothers, it's all intended to see if, to explore the possibility, which Joseph is hoping for. It's all to explore the possibility of reconciling with his brothers. And so he, as I mentioned, he asks them, first of all, who are you and where do you come from? He wants to know whether they're liars. They tell him the truth. He puts the money in the sack and sees if they're still self-serving, conniving, 
whether they're going to just leave and go back to Canaan as if the money was never there and never mentioned it. But they come back and they bring double the money. They come bringing back the old money that was in the sack and new money for the next bunch of foodstuffs that they're going to buy from Egypt. They return for their brother Simeon as opposed to just staying back in Canaan. That was a close call. We got in trouble with the vizier of Egypt. We're not going back there. Never mind Simeon. Tough luck. You know, it happens. But, you know, now one, now another. You know, they return. Then Joseph intensifies that test. When Benjamin comes back, he gives him a portion which is five times as much as the others. Now that could be just pure affection. It seems that Joseph did have a stronger affection for Benjamin than for the other brothers. But it also seems to be a test in itself. Because it's a clear instance of what? Favoritism. Which was also the cause in the first place of his brothers hating Joseph himself and selling him into slavery in Egypt. And so he shows extreme favoritism to Benjamin and then immediately sets up a situation in which the brothers could treat Benjamin badly. He hides his own silver cup in Benjamin's sack and then sends his officials after them. And the officials say, whoever is caught with it is going to be in trouble. The rest of you can go. But as soon as they find it in Benjamin's sack, what happens? All of the men saddle up and come back to Egypt. Which is showing care for their brother Benjamin because they could have said, Benjamin, you idiot. Goodbye. (laughs) We're going back to Canaan. You know, Benjamin was a grown man by this time. They could have went back to their father and they could have said, you know, Benjamin stole the vizier's cup. So we did everything we could. It's his own fault. And we know that these men were not... I mean, that would have been less callous, actually, than what they did to Joseph so many years earlier. And so it could have been otherwise, but they all saddle up and they all come back with Benjamin, which shows Joseph that they actually have care for their brother Benjamin, and it also shows that they have care for their father, which becomes evident in Judah's impassioned plea for Benjamin's release. In which, remember, Judah was the one who took the lead in selling Joseph into slavery in the first place. Back in Genesis 37, 26, Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. In other words, if we just leave him in this pit, he'll be dead, but we won't profit. If we sell him to the Ishmaelites, he'll be as good as dead, but we will profit. That's the kind of man Judah was 20 years earlier. But now Judah says, listen, let Benjamin go and I will stay in prison. I will be your slave. I will be your servant. I will be your prisoner. Let Benjamin go, please, because I care about him and I care about my father. And so what you see is that Joseph, in a very calculating way, puts these brothers in situations where he's going to see what kind of men they are. 
presumably, though we're not given any textual clue, it seems a fair implication from what he does do, that if these brothers had demonstrated the same character as they demonstrated 20 years earlier, it wouldn't have been the same joyful reunion in the end. They wouldn't have been welcomed in the same way to come, as we're going to get to later on in the Genesis narrative, come with with the whole extended family into Egypt where Joseph will be reconciled to them and provide for them and care for them. It seems a fair implication from the fact that he's testing them here and that there is reconciliation which is conditioned upon their repentance. It seems here fair to assume that it would have been otherwise if these brothers had proved that their character had not changed over the last 20 years. But what we see is that it has. And you will recall Genesis chapter 38 in which we talked about how God brought Judah to an awareness of his own sin. When the incident with Tamar, she is more righteous than I. You remember? He brought Judah to an awareness of his own sin in order that later on he might be prepared to meet his exalted brother. You see God's grace in working in these men, preparing these men to meet their exalted brother Joseph in order that there might be reconciliation. Joseph's brothers in this passage demonstrate repentance which is a turning around a turning away from sin a turning away from one thing towards another a 180 with respect to God it's a turning away from sin toward faithfulness to God but you could say that someone repented of a decision it's an archaic way of speaking but you could say that you were going to do such and such on an afternoon, but then you repented and did something else. It just means turning around, turning away. These men had turned away from their old ways and turned towards new ways. They demonstrate repentance. And this is the key here in this passage. Repentance is the key here. Joseph ascertains whether these men are repentant because reconciliation is always conditioned upon repentance. Let me say that again. Reconciliation is always conditioned upon repentance. Between Joseph and his brothers, this is certainly the case. As I just mentioned, Joseph is testing their repentance all the way through here. When he sees how repentant they are, that Judah, who was the ringleader, is now offering himself to stay in the place of Benjamin. That... All 11 of them had returned when really, by rights, the 10 could have gone to Canaan and sent Benjamin back alone in custody. He sees that they're repentant and Joseph could not control himself. He cried, make everyone go out from me. No one stayed with them when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Genesis 45 and verse 1. And we read afterwards, which we'll get onto in further weeks. This is a joyful reunion. The brothers understandably have some trepidation at the first reveal here. But Joseph has no ill will towards these guys. At this point, he's ready to reconcile with them. He sees that they are repentant and he's prepared for full reconciliation. 
And this is paradigmatic for us in a couple of ways. As the whole Joseph narrative, as we've been studying over the last few weeks, is typological of the narrative of Christ, who went on a benevolent mission to his brothers, but instead of being received, came unto his own, and his own received him not. And he was cast down into the pit and left for dead because his brothers said, we will not have this man rule over us. But while he was down there, he did good work and was exalted. And his brothers then found themselves in need and had to come and appeal to their brother who was in the pit but has now been exalted for that which was needful for them to sustain their lives. Had to come and find that it was only through relationship to their exalted brother whom they had been guilty of casting down that they could find what they needed for life. As we've seen, the whole Joseph narrative is typological of the narrative of Christ Jesus in His dissension, His humiliation, and His ascension and exaltation. This subsection then of the Joseph narrative is typological of Christ's exaltation. And in that sense, it's paradigmatic for us. We learn something about how we ought to think of forgiveness and repentance from what's happening here. As this is not just an isolated incident, but this is meant to convey grander truths as it points away from itself towards something greater and bigger. We learn that repentance was not only necessary for reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers, but repentance is also necessary for reconciliation between us and others on the horizontal level, other humans. Forgiveness is always required. In Matthew 18, we read the parable of the unforgiving servant. I think most of us know that one. Somebody owed the king a debt. He, there's no possible way he could pay. It's like if you owed $8 trillion to the Beijing government in taxes. There's just no chance. There's just no possible way. And so you're forgiven. But this man goes out and throws another one in prison for a smaller debt that he couldn't pay. This man who had been forgiven so much is not willing to forgive less. And Jesus explains we must always forgive because we've been forgiven so much. Imagine the absurdity in this narrative, this Joseph narrative. Imagine the absurdity when Joseph reveals himself to the brothers and brings them to live with him in Egypt and provides for them in Egypt. After having forgiven them so much, imagine the absurdity if Joseph heard that one of his brothers was pressing charges against an Egyptian for monies borrowed and not repaid. Just imagine the absurdity of that. This is kind of what's going on in Matthew 18, in that parable of the unforgiving servant. You would think that these guys who had been forgiven so much, it would be absolutely ludicrous for them not to forgive others a lesser amount. 
And so that kind of forgiveness is always required. We ought to be forgiving of others as Christ, our exalted brother, has been forgiving of us. And likewise, Joseph's brothers ought to be forgiving of others as Joseph is forgiving of them. So that kind of forgiveness is always necessary. Now some people will say that forgiveness entails reconciliation. That you can't have forgiveness without reconciliation. And that reconciliation requires repentance. And so forgiveness requires repentance. And what I was just talking about, some will say, is just a willingness to forgive. I think it's clearer and more helpful to say the kind of forgiveness that I just talked about is really forgiveness. And yet, if the relationship is actually going to be restored, become better, repentance needs to happen. And so I would distinguish between forgiveness and repentance. But whatever language you want to use, I think maybe it's just a debate of semantics. Some would beg to differ with me. But whatever language you want to use, we need to have that free willingness to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. Just as Joseph's brothers needed to have a free willingness to forgive as Joseph had forgiven them. And yet relationships can't get better without repentance. And what, however you want to talk about that, whatever you want to call that, I would say we always have to forgive, but we don't always have to be reconciled. And we can't be reconciled unless there's repentance. Joseph isn't willing to put himself back into a vulnerable position with his brothers if they're not repentant. He doesn't want to be taken advantage of them again. Imagine if he brings his brothers who are the same kind of guys to live with him in Egypt and then they start treating Egyptians the bad way that they treated him 20 years ago. What do you think is going to happen to his position of vizier and so on and so Right? He doesn't want to go there again. He's paid his dues. He's been in the pit for a long time. Right? It seems that there's this, there is this willingness to forgive. There's this desire to reconcile with his brothers, but he still requires repentance of them if their relationship is going to get better. So it is and so it may be with us and others. It's not unchristian to expect repentance to happen if reconciliation is going to happen. And this is something that is not taught well in evangelical churches. Forgive and forget is thrown out there so much. No consequences. Oh, you're just, you're being legalistic. You're, you're not forgiving. You're not being Christian. If you're unwilling to put yourself or someone else in a vulnerable position again. If you, do, if you take due diligence, exercise due diligence in terms of has there been change here in this situation. There is nothing wrong with requiring repentance from someone before you move forward in that relationship to a deeper level with someone. The scripture nowhere teaches that repentance is unnecessary for reconciliation. 
So we ought to be forgiving to others as Christ Jesus has been forgiving to us. However, as Joseph represents the exalted Christ and yet requires repentance in order for reconciliation to happen, so Christ Jesus, our exalted brother, requires repentance from us for reconciliation to happen. And so, if you want to press that point, forgive others as Christ has forgiven you, or welcome others as Christ has welcomed you. How has He done that? By requiring repentance. And this brings us to how this is instructive for our relationship with God. And it's important here to get this point right, but to get it right not in a simplistic way. Because if we get this right, if we, if we deal with this point in a simplistic way, it's susceptible to misunderstanding, which actually then makes it susceptible to gospel distortion. So let me try to unpack this point a little bit. Does our repentance merit God's forgiveness? No. The answer to that is a decisive no. Let me ask you this. Did the repentance of Joseph's brothers obligate Joseph to be reconciled to them and to bring them to Egypt and to provide for them? No. Absolutely, 100% not. If Joseph had simply sold them the grain and said, by the way, I'm your brother. (laughs) Now give me your money for the grain. See you later. He He wouldn't have done anything wrong to them whatsoever. Right? In fact, even if he left them with a comment like, you're lucky I'm not doing something more to you. Take your grain and go home. He would not have done anything unjust to them. Just as if God were, if we were to repent of our sins and never sin again, which obviously we know is impossible. But if tonight you repented like you'd never repented before, and from 7.30, July 21st, you never sinned again, And let's say you didn't die until like the year 2060. And you get to heaven and you say, Lord, I'm a new man. I haven't sinned in 39 years. Or, no, that's bad, that's bad, man. (laughs) 41 years. Lord, I have not sinned in 41 years. I am a different man now than I was then. God could say, well, you're still going to hell for what you did up to July 21st, 2019. Because our repentance never obligates God. Our repentance is not the conditions that we meet so that God will accept us. Neither is our faith. Our faith is not the good works that we do in order to become good enough for God. So neither faith nor repentance is the merit upon which we may be reconciled to God and granted eternal life. But is faith a condition? Yes. Very clearly. By grace you are saved through faith. 
by faith, by faith, by faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. It's very clearly a condition, even if it's not meritorious. Likewise, so it is with repentance. If you do not repent, you will not be reconciled to God. Simple as that. Just as it seems if Joseph's brothers here were the same men that they had been 20 years ago, I can almost guarantee you by the logic of this passage that Joseph would not have been reconciled to them the same way and would not have granted them that gracious invitation to come and live with him in Egypt. They didn't deserve that. They didn't earn that by their repentance. It was a gracious invitation to come live in Egypt. But Joseph, I believe, would have refused to offer that grace to them had they not been repentant. And we're told explicitly in the scriptures that God will not be reconciled to those who do not repent. And so it's not, it's not a meritorious condition in the sense of something we have to fulfill to obligate God to do something for us. But nevertheless, God has said, these are the terms. And we are the ones who have to abide by God's terms. We don't get to set the terms of our reconciliation to God. Imagine if Joseph's brothers came to him and said, well, listen... Some things transpired 20 years ago, but we're prepared to move on from that. And we think that you should bring us to Egypt to live with you. It'd be ludicrous. But that's how it is when we go to God and say, we don't like your conditions. Why don't you receive us on different conditions? God sets the conditions... And faith and repentance are the conditions. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. And you will live. That's how it works. We don't obligate God to us by these things. We don't earn His gracious gift of salvation by these things. But nevertheless, He requires these things of us. Jesus Christ and His merit is the only merit upon which God is justly reconciled to us. The only merit upon which we can claim life, reconciliation from God, is that Jesus lived and died and rose as a sinless substitute for us. It's only on that basis that we can say, hey look, merit. Our faith and repentance are not meritorious. Nevertheless, God requires them from us. Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. You know, some people have been so mixed up that they say that preaching of the necessity of repentance dilutes the free offer of the gospel and dilutes the grace of the gospel. Now listen, tell that to Jesus whose first recorded message in the Gospel of Mark, the first recorded words of Jesus, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. 
Listen, if anyone knows about grace, it's Jesus. And yet Jesus preaches, repent and believe in the gospel. Luke chapter 3. In verse 8, John the Baptist preaches, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Luke 3 is really illustrative for us about the necessity of repentance, as John the Baptist preaches repentance, but also the nature of repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Later on in that passage, Luke chapter 3, it says, Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Think about the implication of this. It means that Herod was cut to the heart by John's preaching. It means that he felt bad about John's preaching. Because if he didn't care, he wouldn't have bothered to lock him up. You just be like, well, whatever. Just the same as like sometimes you have an overly critical neighbor, you know, or an over overly critical coworker. Don't put that there. Put that here. So, okay, <laughs> put it there. Whatever, no problem. But Herod was so cut to the heart that he locked John up in prison. This teaches us that it's not just an emotional response to the law of God. That, oh, you realize you've done something wrong. It's more than just conviction of sin. It's actual change. And it's necessary. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What's set in opposition in that passage is perishing and repentance. You either perish or you repent. You either repent or you perish. Hebrews 10, 26-31 For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy, on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Even just from this handful of verses, and I could have multiplied, I think probably literally dozens more. Even just from this handful of verses, it's very clear that repentance is necessary in order to be reconciled to God 
to be forgiven for your sins, to receive eternal life. This passage foreshadows the gospel story. There is a brother who came to do good to his brothers, but instead of receiving him, they essentially killed him, cast him down into the pit, but he was exalted to rule and reign over them according to God's appointment. Remember Joseph's dreams in the beginning. He would rule and reign over them. Psalm 2, I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. He will rule and reign no matter how the kings of the earth and the nations gather themselves together against the Lord and against His anointed. And now it is to that exalted one that all must go. The guilty brothers must come to Him and seek reconciliation with Him. And He requires repentance of us. They must seek forgiveness from Him. And He's prepared to give it. He requires repentance of us. He has what we need. He is able to sustain our life. To cause us to live. He requires repentance from us. We know from other passages that we ought to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. If we were to take that idea and look at this passage as paradigmatic of that, Joseph's brothers ought to forgive as Joseph had forgiven them. We know that from other passages of Scripture. But what comes out very clearly in Genesis 42, 43, and 44 is this really important idea for navigating our way through our own horizontal relationships in life and navigating our way through our relationship with God. Repentance is necessary. In a marriage, for example, forgiveness over and over and over again just keeps the marriage existing. Only repentance makes it better. If your wife or your husband comes to you over and over and over about the same things, you might say, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, and refuse to leave and refuse to divorce, but your relationship doesn't get better. You don't get reconciled. Only repentance makes that relationship better. So it is with any other relationship. Friends, co-workers, fellow church members, whatever. Reconciliation is always conditional upon repentance. Your relationship can't get better. It can't get fixed until there's repentance. So it is also with our relationship to God. How can we have a close relationship with God when we're still doing the very things that killed the Lord Jesus Christ? How can our relationship with God be right when we don't care about what hung Jesus on the cross? It's not for justice that the Lord demands repentance from us. Jesus has already satisfied all the demands of justice on our behalf. God could justly Forgive us apart from repentance. 
But he would be dishonoring himself. He'd be holding himself up to ridicule by allowing us to trample underfoot the Son of God, profane the blood of the covenant. And by definition, he couldn't have a reconciled relationship to us if we weren't repentant. Obviously. If one party doesn't care about the other, doesn't love the other, isn't trying to do right by the other, how can those two have a right relationship? So even God and His relationship with us requires repentance of us. Therefore, Christians ought to be forgiving like Joseph. And Christians ought to be repentant like Joseph's brothers. Imagine if we took this paradigm with us into all of life. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that none of us were sold into slavery to the Midianites some 20 years back. But if Joseph could forgive that, he wasn't divine. He wasn't Christ. He was a Christian, if I can put it that way. I know it's anachronistic to some extent to say that, but you understand my point. He wasn't Christ, he was just a Christian. And yet he could forgive such gross injustices done by his brothers to him. And in fact, he could even be willing to embrace his brothers again as brothers, to be reconciled to them, to come into relationship with them again, to be benevolent towards them, to bring them into Egypt to live with them. We Christians ought to be forgiving like Joseph. Which is just another way of saying we we ought to be forgiving like Joseph as Joseph was forgiving like Christ. Imagine if we brought that kind of forgiveness to bear on our relationships. Christians ought to be forgiving like Joseph. But, and this passage makes it clear, Christians also ought to be repentant like Joseph's brothers. Imagine... Judah doesn't know the outcome here. You realize that? Judah has no idea what's about to transpire when he says, leave me here instead of Benjamin. He's literally saying, send me into an Egyptian prison to be under the wrath of the vizier rather than my brother. That's how, that's how changed he was. How ready to love his brother he was. We ought to be likewise repentant. Again, Judah wasn't Christ. He was just a Christian. It's possible. It's doable. Even for we who are not divine. To be like Christ. Christians ought to be forgiving like Joseph. And repentant like Joseph's brothers. It will do all of our relationships a world of good here and now to adopt such a paradigm and to embrace repentance toward God is literally a matter of eternal life and death.
So in the here and now, and with eternal ramifications, consider the teaching of these three chapters in Genesis. That reconciliation anywhere, in human relationships and in our relationship with God, is always conditioned upon repentance.